0: So we're really starting a new series, or oh, it's a new new gathering, so I guess it has to be a new series, but a series of talks which, or of, of um, reflections together, we were trying to explore the connection between uh, what we are and what we are becoming as Mosaic, and the so-called Peace Church tradition because there appears, I think to many of us, quite a close correspondence between the vision of Christian life that's expressed in Mosaic's Manifesto and what emerged on the radical wing of the 16th 16th century Reformation amongst the so-called Anabaptists. So the goal of this um, series of evenings is to bring our circumstances into conversation with this radical tradition, to see whether we can learn what we can learn from this tradition, and whether we might be able to identify ourselves with this larger reality. So it's not a series of lectures on church history. Tonight's probably going to be the most historical of them all, um, but it's a way really of just using this tradition to try and focus our own thinking on three or four core convictions of the radical Christian tradition and I hope I have time to get to all four, but the four are the centrality of Christ to our vision of life uh, life as discipleship a commitment to community and the call on us as followers of Jesus to be engaged in peacemaking. Those three or four core convictions of the Anabaptist tradition and I think of Christian radicalism more generally express not just a set of activities but as a way of life And I think the challenge in trying to learn from a tradition that's not familiar to us is actually replicating the culture or the way of life that characterise that tradition. It's one thing to get the ideas straight, it's another thing to sort of participate in a more holistic sense. Uh, As far as I know, there are no New Zealand churches or denominations that stand in direct uh, descent from the Anabaptist stream and most New Zealand Christians would never have heard of the word Anabaptist Um, when people have asked me I've said well if you can sort of imagine combining a Baptist with a Quaker you might start to get a bit close to what this this Anabaptist thing is although that's not really a very perfect analogy either (coughs) so to kick off the series I would like to this evening to explain how um, we and it is a shared journey with Margaret I'll probably say I all the time because I can only really speak for myself but this is has been something that we've um, experienced together, but how we ended up identifying so strongly with this tradition, with its concerns and with its convictions, and try to summarize what those sort of key convictions are. Anabaptism, I think, though, has only been one of many influences in my Christian life, uh, and if I was to sort of try and categorize what the big streams of influence have been on me, I think there would be these four. Uh, One is the evangelical tradition. So I was brought up in a Baptist family. Uh, I belonged when I was a student to the evangelical student movement on campus, and it was a very vigorous and large movement at that time. Uh, I taught in an evangelical theological institution for nearly 20 years uh, in Auckland before coming back to Wellington. And much of my adult Christian pilgrimage has been hammered out in dialogue with this tradition. Now, you don't choose the traditions that you're born into, um, and so I might really uh, dissent from some of that tradition. i certainly dissent from a lot of the American expression of that tradition. But nonetheless, it's been a major influence on the way I understand uh, Christian life. From it, I guess I've acquired a sense of the importance of Scripture as the as the key sort of reference point for our understanding of life and faith. Uh, the necessity of personal faith and commitment, so evangelicals are fond of saying that God has no grandchildren uh, and I, I actually agree with that that there is something about this this um, life of faith that needs to be owned individually by people it 's not something that can be sort of passed on uh, through genes and geography. Uh, the importance of mission to Christian commitment that that we are called to share the good news with others, however, we understand that works out. It's um, something that evangelicalism has strongly emphasized. And from that tradition I've also discovered over the last couple of years that I know hundreds of hymns. Um, My my iPhone now has 250 hymns that I've downloaded from iTunes. I'm amazed at how many of these songs I know from my childhood. Uh, And I've actually become very fond of southern gospel music over the last wee while. So that's been one big influence on my life. A second has been the charismatic movement. So my parents um, were early leaders in the charismatic renewal in New Zealand in the early 1960s. Uh, I personally had a very powerful charismatic experience when I was only 11 years of age. Uh, Throughout my teenage and early adult years, I was involved in uh, charismatic and neo-Pentecostal fellowships, including uh, Catholic charismatic, two two Catholic charismatic groups. Uh, So that's also been a big influence on my understanding of faith. Uh, from this I, that stream, I guess I've learned to appreciate the transforming impact that actually having an experience of God's love, not just a, a you know, concept of it, but an experience of God's love and presence, can have. So one theologian has described the Holy Spirit as the God whom we experience that it's through the Spirit that we come into a, a personal experience of God's life and love. And that's been a very important part of my journey as well. Uh, the capacity of a sharing in that experience to create community, to break down barriers between different traditions. Um, and I guess also from that tradition I've learned of the constant danger of spiritual pride, of elitism, of manipulation. Uh, and of quick fix solutions to rather complex problems. I think um, especially Pentecostals are very inclined that way. So, my appreciation of the spiritual life has been enriched by the contemplative tradition and by liturgical practices as well, but I still think that uh, I have this kind of craving for the breath of the Spirit as well, which I'm sure comes from uh, my upbringing. A third influence has been the neo-Calvinist tradition. So during uh, our student days, we were very influenced by a group on campus called the Foundation for Christian Studies, which was a group of academics who drew primarily on Reformed Christian philosophy. I won't say any more about it than that. But from that involvement, one thing that I really did uh, learn to Uh, Value was the importance of developing a Christian mind of learning to think uh, Christianly about all aspects of life not just about church and theology and spirituality but also about economics and politics and aesthetics and social policy and law and so on so one of the slogans that uh, was used in that particular group was Christ is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all so Christ's Lordship by definition if it's Lordship must embrace the whole of life Yet even before becoming aware of Anabaptism, I was always perplexed in this very uh, impressive group of people. I was always perplexed by the minor role that Jesus and the Gospels play in the Reformed scheme. Now you're brought up in a Reformed Baptist church, aren't you, man? So you can tell me whether this is your experience as well. Um, Jesus and the Gospels actually play hardly any role at all, in, in my experience, in this tradition. Uh, Christ is honoured as the source of salvation but Christian life and thought is largely derived from the Old Testament and from Christian philosophical reasoning. So it's almost as though, I think this is true of much evangelicalism as well, much mainstream Christianity, in fact, is you go to Jesus for salvation, but you go to Moses for ethics. And the sort of, the, the, the sort of role of, of biblical law is, is very much more dominant in that tradition, I think than the role of Jesus. Which brings me then to this fourth tradition, the Anabaptist tradition, which has been the most enduring and important influence on my Christian life. And it's not that we first learned that there was such a thing as Anabaptism and then we chose to espouse its tenets. Rather, I think that our Christian pilgrimage had, you know, by the age of 29, 30, whenever it was that we uh, moved to London, A Christian pilgrimage had brought us to hold certain convictions and conclusions about what the life of faith involves that we then discovered was reflected in this tradition about which we had known next to nothing. So it was that the kind of Anabaptist frame provided a fit for views that we had already come to regard as important through our own sort of independent Pilgrimage, an expression of Christian faith that corresponded with the instincts and the gut feelings and the priorities that we had come to believe were central. So I now, I guess, would say that the Anabaptist tradition is a kind of theological Te It's a place to stand within the broader Christian family uh, to give a perspective on the broader Christian life so let me tell you about how we first came into contact with tradition, I'm actually going to read you something because I've written this up in in, uh, uh, an essay that was published a number of years ago and it'll just be as easy for me to read you a few paragraphs and to try and paraphrase it to say we were converted by a cookbook would be going too far But it was the more with less recipe book, together with John Howard Yoder's The Politics of Jesus, which Margaret and I read as university students, that first triggered our interest in the Anabaptist tradition. Both books were produced by Mennonites, and both gave expression in different ways to the same fundamental Mennonite conviction, that to be a Christian means following Jesus, that following Jesus means taking Jesus' ethical teaching seriously, And taking Jesus seriously means a lifestyle of simplicity, service and peacemaking. In the heyday of student radicalism in the early 1970s, discovering the authentic Christian radicalism of this long-established but little-known faith tradition was very timely. Three decades later, we count that tradition to be one of the most formative influences on our understanding of Christian faith. Our lives have been immeasurably enriched by participation in two Mennonite congregations, attendance at several Mennonite conferences, two periods of sabbatical leave at Mennonite seminaries in the US, reading Mennonite scholarship, and above all, by enduring friendships with Mennonite Christians in different parts of the world. After completing my initial theological studies in Wellington in 1980, I was accepted for postgraduate work in New Testament at the University of London. We decided to spend three months in North America en route to Britain thinking this would be a good opportunity to meet some real live Mennonites, I obtained addresses from three of three Mennonite organizations from the U.S. Embassy in Wellington. Uh, those were the days when you rang the embassy and somebody actually answered the phone. It doesn't, it doesn't happen anymore. Um, and I can vividly recall this conversation. I said, we're going to the U.S. And we'd like to meet some Mennonites. Can you give us some addresses? And he said, sure thing. And he must have just put the phone down and gone to some phone books and came back with these three addresses. Uh, one was near Chicago, which was on our itinerary, so we arranged to Pay them a visit our first few weeks in America were very unsettling. We encountered various expressions of church life but didn 't like much like what we saw, whether it was the smooth consumer religion of the mega church in Los Angeles we visited, or the manipulative showmanship of the countless teleevangelists I at least watched, or the overt racism of the small Midwestern Presbyterian Church we attended with some distant relations the American Christian scene seemed bizarre indeed. What we found most disturbing, however, was the boisterous God and country nationalism that permeated church as well as society. I remember watching one well-known TV preacher, whose theology was thoroughly orthodox, I was assured by an American friend, commemorate the 4th of July with a sermon entitled I am the American flag. In return for a reasonable donation to his ministry, I could have got a transcript of his message and a lapel of the Stars and Stripes, uh, lapel badge of the Stars and Stripes, but I resisted the temptation. (laughs) With this fresh in our minds, we turned up at the Mennonite World Conference headquarters in Lombard, near Chicago. We were given a gracious welcome and spent the afternoon in conversation. At one point I asked the director what he thought of the religious nationalism so pervasive in what we had seen of the American church. Idolatry was his simple reply. I remember writing in the visitor's book, Wonderful to Meet Kindred Spirits. We arrived in London later that year and spent the first months finding our feet. We visited several churches in our neighborhood but could find nothing that really suited. Then one Sunday we attended the worship service of the London Mennonite Fellowship in Highgate, North London. As strangers in a foreign land, spiritually it felt like coming home. We fitted in a way we had not experienced before. We remained active members of that church until we returned to New Zealand four years later. What was it about this small Mennonite fellowship we found so special? Many things, but the one that stands out was its holistic, integrative theology. Here was a church that held together many of the concerns we had come to believe were integral to Christian faith but which in our experience Christians often set against each other joyful worship with sensitivity to pain thoughtful biblical teaching with openness to the spontaneity of the spirit evangelism with social commitments scholarship with spirituality ethical seriousness with humility and gentleness, Christian community with an acceptance of people's individuality, enjoyment of cultural activities with non-conformity to the world. These things are often seen as mutually exclusive. Christians split asunder what God has joined together. The London Mennonite community modelled a natural and attractive integration of these things. So that was our induction into this way of being Christian. But I've come to believe uh, since then, as a result of that experience and, and what's happened since, that Anabaptism has peculiar relevance to the historical space that we are in at this time. Because for me, the single greatest factor that gives Anabaptism significance is the demise of Constantinian Christendom you might have never heard of it so you're worrying about it's death but I'm going to tell you that it's, it's important and it's death is important as well because we're currently witnessing I think the death throes of Christendom not of Christianity but of Christendom so those two words don't mean the same thing Christendom is a term that refers to that sort of synthesis between Western culture The state and the church, that these three sort of realities are fused together, that began with the conversion of Emperor Constantine in the fourth century and has now unraveled. Now, the roots of this unraveling go back centuries, but it's become unmistakably visible in the post war period. So, in my baby boomer generation, we have witnessed a decisive shift from a time when virtually all Westerners, virtually all New Zealanders, would have described themselves as Christian simply because they're born into a country where Christianity is the dominant religion to a time when perhaps the majority of people regard themselves as either non-religious or non-Christian specifically. So Christianity is now no longer perceived to be something that embraces the entire national community. Rather, it is universally perceived to be a matter of personal taste and a somewhat deviant taste at that. Many conservative Christians worry fretfully about this loss of a kind of Christian culture to our society and they call for a turning back of the clock to some golden era in the past when the church was triumphant and everybody um, everybody, sort of acknowledged a Christian identity. Anabaptists, however, and I rank myself amongst them, regard the death of the Constantinian Synthesis as a good thing, not a bad thing. Because it has the potential to free the church from cultural captivity and political captivity and to enable it to truly be the church again. The church that God always intended it to be. A dissident community of love, committed to following the way of Jesus in a confused world, as a witness to God's saving work in creation. That, for me, is what the church is supposed to be about. Now, I'm going to say a bit more about the demise of Christendom in uh, my next session, which won't be the next one, but the one after that. But enough here just to say that it is this, I think, that means that Anabaptism is so significant. I think Anabaptism is an idea that has found its day. Because Christian thinkers of all stripes recognize now that we can no longer presuppose Christendom as the context for Christian witness. Things have changed. The old models that we have used no longer apply. New models are needed. And in this setting, it seems to me that the tradition that has historically been most critical of Christendom is the one that has the most to offer the church as it renegotiates its self-understanding in a post-Christendom environment. So... I don't feel... I mean, I think there are losses in terms of the wider culture sort of abandoning any sense of Christian uh, identity, but I I, I don't greet it with alarm at all. I think this, uh, in a sense, is returning us to what ought to be the kind of default setting for the church, which is being this dissident uh, community of love that uh, engages with wider culture by following in the footsteps of Jesus. So let me say a little bit about the birth of this tradition. Uh, As I'm sure you know, the 16th century was a time of great upheaval for the church. The Roman Catholic Church went through this major split which led to the birth of so-called Protestant Christianity. When people think of the Protestant Reformation, they usually think of the names of Luther and Zwingli and Calvin, and perhaps if you're a Scot, John Knox, or if you're an Anglican, you might think of Henry VIII. Um, And these are the big names that sort of dominate the official story of the Reformation. But the 16th century was a confused and confusing time, and alongside these major or magisterial reform traditions, there were a variety of other more radical groups that emerged as well. Each of these groups had differing outlooks and agendas. Some were mystical, some were apocalyptic, some were political, some were just plain criminal. But what is sometimes called on the left wing of the Protestant Reformation a movement emerged that felt that the official reformation was not going far enough and it was not going fast enough so in the early 1520s in Zurich leaders such as Conrad Grebel and Felix Münz and many others objected to the slow pace and the caution of the Zwinglian Reformation. And the issue centered initially around the mass and the abolition of the mass, but also around uh, imposed tithes on the population. And so the question was, as this sort of reform movement got underway, what was politically feasible? And there were a group of radicals who felt that it just wasn't going far enough. And this led to the emergence of what is sometimes called the Believer's Church Tradition, or the Radical Reformation. So the magisterial Protestant reformers, the Lutherans and the Calvins and the Zwingli's, broke with Rome on fundamental issues of theology and ecclesial practice, and I guess in some senses on moral practice, but they still subscribed to the Christendom model of a state church. To which all citizens belonged by virtue of birth and by virtue of infant baptism. So, in some places, people went to bed Catholics and they woke up the next day Protestants because the prince had decided to embrace the Protestant Reformation and therefore everybody was swept up. You had no choice, now you were suddenly. I remember going to a, an icon. Uh, um, display, what's the word um, here in Wellington oh, I look at exhibition. exhibition, thank you and uh, had, a, had a timeline on at one point they had mm-hmm. not, at eleven twenty. all Russia becomes Christian now it was that kind of mindset that largely prevailed amongst the Protestant reformers as well the radical reformers however championed what was at the time a novel idea discovered through Bible study and prayer of the church as a voluntary community of genuine believers, not simply as the religious face of civic society. And so over against the prevailing practice of baptizing every infant into the national church, they insisted that baptism was a believer's right of entry into the community of faith. That baptism was the visible expression of an inward voluntary commitment to discipleship, hence, a believer's church, not simply a state church. The word Anabaptist itself means rebaptizer. It was a term that was coined by the opponents of this radical. Um, group as a term of reproach, in fact, it was a criminal charge punishable by death to engage in rebaptizing because it was an, an inherently a denial of the efficacy of of infant baptism but the movement 's leaders denied that they were rebaptizing anybody. they said infant baptism is not true Christian baptism. Uh, and we're just baptizing, we're not re-baptizing they preferred to refer to themselves as the brethren as the brothers and sisters, not as Anabaptists but the label itself stuck um, and is used increasingly today actually it's used more and more uh, today to describe this tradition the the word Mennonite comes from the name of a second generation converted Dutch priest, Menno Simons who helped to regroup this movement after some um, uh, traumas, after early traumas caused by persecution and some rather unfortunate misadventures that we won't go into either. So the word Anabaptist then, especially in current usage refers to the theological tradition, the believers' church tradition, which I'm about to describe. The word Mennonite is one denominational expression of this, along with the Amish, the Hutterites, the Brethren in Christ, and the various other uh, groups that would stand in the same, the same stream. The stream itself was hugely diverse. Luther regarded the Anabaptists as ravers and lunatics. And church historians have largely until recently shared that view. So the whole movement's been branded by the most extreme. It's what we do with Islam today. You take the most extreme expression and you say that's what the whole movement's about. And that's what mainstream church historians have done for quite a long time, although things have changed. Um, but for all its diversity, <clears throat> from the the radical Reformation Groups, there emerged a distinctive vision of Christian life that stood in contrast to the other Christian traditions of the time and in many ways still does. Now, each component of this vision, when you talk about an isolation, is nothing very special. Most Christians would affirm and accept each of these components. So, for example... Evangelicalism shares the emphasis on a believer's church. Most free church traditions do, in fact, virtually all churches in the West now do, apart from perhaps the the Catholic Church, an emphasis on the church as being made up of believers. Many practice believers' baptism. The Quakers and the Franciscans stress the importance of peace and nonviolence. Liberation theology talks about the role of justice and the the role of the community suffering in the cause of justice. Um, Most sectarian or nonconformist groups stress the idea of the church as a bounded community and something you actually have to choose to belong to, not just something that you're accidentally caught up in. Uh, All Christian traditions affirm the centrality of Scripture. So none of these ideas are unique to Anabaptism. But I think what sets it apart is the way in which this tradition has managed to hold these things together in a package and to see them as all important parts of the whole. And the sum is greater than the parts. And the culture, if you like, is greater than the individual parts. And that's the, part, that's the elusive part to me. I, I don't know quite how you reproduce that. Um, but it's, 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 it's not that any one of these ideas is totally unique by any means. But it's the way in which they're held together, and, and the way in which the combination of these things creates a vision of Christian life, which I think above all else, in my experience, has been characterised by a sense of care. I mean, I remember in the church we belonged to in London, sitting with a visitor at lunchtime, uh, and he was asking a little bit about the community, and he said, he said something, something about this community, it's, it just feels like people care. Um, you know, Agape, that basic sense of love as care, and I think the whole tradition is kind of stamped with that uh, because of its, of its vision of Christian life together with its historical experience of persecution um, and to some extent withdrawal. So, four things. How are we going for time? What time should I stop? About <laughs> 10. You'll live to regret that. <laughs> Right, four things, and I, 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 I won't develop them all as fully as, as I could. The first is the centrality of Jesus to Christian life and faith so the reformers all agreed all Christian traditions agree on the centrality of Jesus Christ and God's purposes otherwise we'd be Jews I mean the thing that distinguishes Christianity from Judaism is Christ, is the person of Jesus that's that's the distinctive thing that makes this tradition different so you could say that Christianity is by definition Christocentric but in the mainstream Christian traditions a kind of doctrinal Christocentrism has tended to eclipse an ethical Christocentrism in other words what one believes about Christ is more important than when one whether one actually follows him in practice so the notion of salvation by faith which is a kind of the catch cry of the Lutheran Reformation at its worst comes down to the idea that you 're saved by having your right mental Belief about things. As long as you've got your theology straight, you'll be okay. It's like you turn up at the Pearly Gates, and the first thing that St Peter does is check off that you believe the right things about Christ. Now that's a terrible sort of um, oversimplification of it, but I think you'll know what I mean. It often comes down to that. Christ has functioned more as the central link in the doctrine of salvation than as the central paradigm for Christian lifestyle. And maybe the the problem goes way back to the beginning because the church's foundational creeds are virtually silent on ethics. I don't know if you've ever been struck by the fact that the Nicene Creed, uh, shared by all Christian traditions, jumps from the virgin birth to the condemnation under Pontius Pilate and says nothing about the in-between bit. It's like Jesus was born of a virgin and then he died and whatever happened in between somehow is not relevant. And I mean that's not to say that the early, the early church didn't um, focus on that period but they didn't feel it was necessary to put it into their sort of creedal summary. And I think this has allowed the church of Christendom to bear the name of Christ yet do the work of the devil at the same time. So in the interest of doctrinal orthodoxy the church historically has raised armies and waged war. It has tortured heretics and burned witches. It has persecuted dissenters, and it has compelled conversions. And you think, how can, you, how can they have done that in the name of Christ? Well, because Christ has been more an abstract idea than actually a moral example that the church is accountable to. So Anabaptism emerged in the 16th century and there were movements earlier than this as well the Franciscans were earlier than this I mean there been I mean the monastic movement itself was an example of a kind of dissent from this view but Anabaptism emerged in the 16th century as a protest movement against violent coercive Christianity and it insisted on a moral not just a doctrinal Christocentrism in other words the essential mark of Christian Identity is not simply having a correct theological evaluation of the person and work of Christ, which is important, the worship of Christ. It's not that they denied that, but that's not the key mark of Christian identity. The key mark of Christian identity, because everybody else shared those views at the time anyway, the key mark of Christian identity is moral conformity to the way of life taught and demonstrated by Jesus in the Gospel records. The imitation of Christ. So this radical moral Christocentrism is a really strong feature of Anabaptist Christianity. And it functions in the interpretation of Scripture as well. And last year in our series on uh, the better story of the Bible uh, this came through as well in um, in the talk I gave at the beginning about how the story of Jesus is supposed to be the, the lens through which you view the whole of scripture so it 's a kind of Christocentrism applied to hermeneutics if you forgive the jargon and it worked, it worked itself out in at least these two ways, first, according to the Anabaptists, when you read the Bible, the point is whatever agrees with the example and teaching of Jesus in the Gospels whatever in the Bible agrees with that then that's God's word for today whatever contradicts the teaching and example of Jesus such as war and slavery and capital punishment and violent coercion and all those sorts of things then that is no longer God's word for the covenant community today so Menno Simon said and I quote all scripture must be interpreted according to the spirit, teaching, walk, and example of Jesus and the apostles. Now, when, when you say that, you think, well, of course, <laughs> that's not the way most people work. And as you know, somebody who's been deeply immersed in teaching evangelical theological students, I can tell you what's more important for evangelicals is a theology of scripture. <coughs> it's the fact that you regard the whole Bible as the inerrant word of God. That's the most important thing. with an Anabaptist hermeneutics that's not the most important the most important thing is that when you read the word of God you do it by checking things against the benchmark of the Jesus of the Gospels and the second part of that kind of hermeneutical framework is the Anabaptists believed that you can only know the truth of scripture when you are obedient to Jesus' call to discipleship only committed disciples can truly understand the text the text. So Hans Denk, one of the early leaders put it this way, no one can claim truly to know Christ unless he follows him in life and this is something that um, I think rings very true to our generation. You've got to walk the talk and your talk is supposed to be about the walk and, and if you're not walking the walk you can't really talk the talk. I mean this is to put it in theological jargon there's no orthodoxy right belief without orthopraxy right lifestyle the two go together. So that's one of the central Anabaptist convictions. The second is this. The essence of Christianity is discipleship. The heart of Christianity is discipleship. The Anabaptists demanded a consistency between inner belief and outer lifestyle. They were very critical of the official reformation for failing to produce the level of moral obedience in the adherence that they'd even seen in Catholicism. And the reformers like Luther and Zwingli were were aware of this problem that the Protestant churches weren't actually living a very godly life, that the level of Christian living amongst the Protestant population was often much lower than amongst the Catholic uh, community. One theological solution to this dilemma, and you may have heard this kind of language used, was to distinguish between the church invisible, which is the true believers, who are assured of salvation. And the church visible, which is the institutional church, which is a very mixed bag, and has bad people as well, as good people in it. Uh, And this language of the church invisible is sometimes still used in that sense. Um, The Anabaptists bridled at any conception of an invisible church, or of a true church apart from personal commitment to the life of discipleship. And they proceeded to organize churches based on the principle of commitment to Christian discipleship. And again, in our sort of free church days, this sounds pretty unexceptional, but it was was radically different than what prevailed. So the heart of Christian life for the Anabaptists was not justification by faith as it was in the Lutheran tradition or divine election and predestination as it was in the Reformed tradition or the imminent work of grace as it is in the Roman Catholic tradition. The heart of Christian life was the concept, and they used the phrase all the time, of following Jesus. So here's what one historian says. The Anabaptists dealt in depth with the concept of making disciples. No other Christian movement between the apostolic era and the modern mission period has articulated and demonstrated more clearly the meaning of discipling than have the Anabaptists. While mainline reformers rediscovered the great Pauline term faith, the radical reformers rediscovered the gospel writer's word discipleship. People cannot, they maintained, call Jesus Lord unless they are his disciples, indeed prepared to follow him in every way. This was the message they preached, the code they lived by, and the faith they died for, and they died for it in considerable numbers at the hands of both Catholic and Protestant leaders. So I think this contention that active discipleship is the essence of Christian identity is an important corrective to the cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer called it, or the easy believism, as people refer to it, or perhaps what is the dominant kind of expression of, of um, popular Protestant piety today, which has been called a therapeutic deism. Um, you know, the megachurch idea that God is this cosmic thumb to suck. And that God is there basically to meet all your needs. And he's there to make your life pleasurable and to make your life meaningful. And, and God just becomes a cipher for that kind of therapeutic um, um, blessing factory in heaven. And that sort of therapeutic deism, uh, really the, the opposite to that is the life of discipleship. Is one call to follow in the footsteps of Jesus who says, take up your cross and follow me. The third thing that I think characterized this tradition is an ethic of peace and non-violence. So, not all the early Anabaptists were committed to non-violence, or as they preferred to call it, non-resistance, taken straight from Matthew 5. Some Anabaptist sects were positively militant. uh, And in 1535, a group of militant Revolutionary Anabaptists seized the city of Munster, proclaimed the advent of God's kingdom on earth, forced baptism on the inhabitants, and even put some resistors and opponents to death. And that's been the kind of uh, the ISIS of the Anabaptist period that has 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 tarred the whole the whole tradition. But by the 1560s, a principled rejection of violence had become the dominant ethos of the movement. It was considered to be one of the primary ways that believers imitate Christ and his teaching. A corollary of this was a refusal to swear oaths. So in Matthew 5, Jesus talks about letting your yes be yes and your no be no. The Anabaptists were biblicists. They took this very seriously and they refused to swear oaths. They refused to swear oaths because, as Jesus himself points out, it's a devaluation of truth. The problem with saying you can only believe me when I say I promise or I swear it, is the rest of the time I may be telling a lie. Um, so this refusal to swear oaths was part of a commitment to truth, but it was also a way of resisting the principle of state coercion. So the easiest way to identify the Anabaptists in the village was for the prince and his henchmen to ride into the village to get everybody in the town square and say, swear an oath of fealty to your prince. And those who didn't do it, you drown them because they're Anabaptists. So they took this very seriously. Uh, it was part of this commitment to voluntary, gentle Christianity. Mm-hmm. So for me personally, I think a commitment to nonviolence, to pacifism, if you like, uh, is the most radical commitment of all. Um, and I mean that in the sense that when you make that call, and it's not an easy one, for, none of us are born that way, when you make that call, I think it forces you to question lots of things that other people take for granted. It forces you to open your eyes, as your prayer did, Andy, to the sort of hidden sites of violence in society. And it disallows acceptance of a kind of tribal nationalism that is pumped out 24 hours a day to us, that permits killing as long as it's done on behalf of the state. Any other killing is murder, but if the government tells you to do it, then it's a good thing to do. And I think to have reached the point in my journey of saying... I cannot kill and follow Jesus. These two things don't go together. Um, it is for me the heart of a of a radical outlook, uh, and you know I think it's really significant this tradition embraced that as as a, as, a, um, as a as a central core of of Christian commitment. And it led to huge bloodshed because they were repressed fiercely by both Catholic and Protestant princes because they were subversive, because a refusal to kill on behalf of the state is subversive, it's treasonable, and uh, many, many thousands were tortured and killed by the ruling authorities. And there is a book which I have in my office, which I was given. it's about that fat, called The Martyr's Mirror, and it's it 's just eyewitness accounts of the, of the martyrs in the 16th century who were, who were killed for their faith, and true Mennonites, those who were born into this sort of tradition, read this as their family history. I mean it 's the most gruesome book to ever look at, and I 've never really had the courage to read it, but it 's there on my bookshelf. <laughs> Mahatma Gandhi once said, "The only people on earth who do not see Christ and his teachings as nonviolent are Christians." The only people on earth who do not see Christ and His teachings as nonviolent are Christians. Well, the Anabaptists, the Quakers, are instructive exceptions to this sad state of affairs. Uh, they practice nonviolent forms of social engagement, and they've worked hard at constructing a peace theology to undergird it. A peace theology that I've personally found extremely beneficial. Okay, just so we, we can uh, have time for conversation, the fourth thing about the Anabaptist tradition that I think um, we will resonate with as well is the idea of the church as a committed and caring community. So Anabaptism rests on a, a kind of an ecclesiology, an understanding of what it means to be church. And church is not an institution, it's a gathered community of genuine believers who live under the authority of Christ visibly distinct from the unbelieving world and also from more nominal or in their views apostate Christianity both of which dwell outside the perfection of Christ was the way in which the uh, 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 early Schleitheim Confession put it which sounds very arrogant but this idea at the heart of it that the church is not supposed to simply be the national party of prayer or you know the the whole society at worship. It's supposed to be a community of witness, and the witness that it it uh, it embodies comes from its commitment to following Jesus. And so there are several corollaries of this which I I won't expand on. But voluntaryism, voluntary membership is one. Believers' baptism was an important thing. Um, when we were in London, one of the issues that came up in the church there was what about people who embraced the Anabaptist tradition? But have been baptised as children. Do they need to get rebaptized? And the conclusion we reached was no. It's not just the act of, re- of baptism that's important. It's what it represented. And in the first century, uh, sorry, the 16th century, it represented a commitment to, to 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 voluntary religious faith. I mean, as opposed to something that's imposed. Uh, and so, you know, maybe baptism is not the key kind of symbol for today but um, it lies at at the heart of the 16th century experience. A separation from the world, again at its worst, because of persecution, it became a complete withdrawal from the world. Uh, and that I think uh, we can 't accept, uh, I think you know in the name of christ 's lordship we can 't sort of withdraw into our holy huddles and, and just ignore the rest of the world, uh, but at its, at its best, what this notion of separation is is this idea that we 're called not to be conformed to this age but to be transformed and to be transformed in the big issues money sex power violence you know the big things that um, that um, we need to show a distinction in uh, suffering uh, discipline they practiced the ban which was horrible you know again part of being a bounded community is a preparedness to expel people if they didn't walk the you know walk the talk um, something i think is, is is very damaging and something we we need to handle with critical gaze, I think, Um, are radically egalitarian, they're very anti-clerical, very anti-hierarchical, and so on and so forth. So, let me just finish. The relevance, I think, of Anabaptism for us in Mosaic at this time, in this stage of Western history and in this place in our country, is that it offers us a vision of Christian life and a wisdom of trying to live out that vision informed by a long historical experience. And the genius and the attractiveness for me of the Anabaptist vision is in its combination of these central ideas that Jesus is the supreme paradigm for Christian life. He is the one that embodies what we must seek to to embody as well. He is the one that shows us uh, how to live our lives under god 's reign, the call to a radical discipleship that touches on ethics as well as on theology as well as on sort of personal salvation, an understanding of the church as a countercultural community countercultural in the big issues, not just in you know the sort of long hair hippie stuff but in the in the really big issues. Countercultural in that it's based on voluntary membership, servant leadership, mutual care, mutual accountability, corporate discernment, those sorts of ideas. And finally, the rejection of violence and coercion and a dedication to the way of peace and the way of justice. Many Christians today, many of you I'm sure from your own backgrounds, would want to affirm some or all of those items individually. What my experience has been is that to have them embraced together, to have them all incorporated in the same package of of uh, of commitments, uh, and especially when it starts to live itself out at a kind of intergenerational cultural level, uh, is, is really what makes the Anabaptist experience so attractive and so important. Uh, that integration, I think is the heart cry of many people who are discontented with the current church and I think it's actually the heart cry of many people in our culture today so Alan Crider who is a very strong influence on our life and who's currently on his deathbed literally he's only got a few weeks to live uh, once said to me he was an early church historian he said to me as far as he's concerned church history is the story of people pulling apart what Jesus held together of Christians pulling apart where Jesus held together and those things that I've outlined as part of the Anabaptist vision I could equally have explained, and perhaps in the series that lies ahead of us, this will happen could equally be explained as part of the of the life of Jesus, I and mean, then you can find all those things characterizing his life as well and so that's why I think it is a, it is a vision of Christian life that um, is worth us attending to because um, I think we'll find a lot in it that we just recognize as being what Christian life really ought to be.